lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre and all of you at 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Parlor at Steve Dace and check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Also, my next book, the novella sequel to A Nefarious Plot, titled A Nefarious Carol, is due out December 15th. Pre-sales are going on right now at Amazon.com. Pre-sales at Amazon.com for A Nefarious Carol. Make sure you get it just in time for Christmas. Coming up here today on the program, three non-political questions. Theology Thursday. We're going to get into that next hour. The governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, is going to be joining us next hour as well. A ton to get to. I want to mention this, though, right from the outset, because there's there's (laughs) universities now that after they got your money want to have your kids stay home and be quarantined and not attend classes. I had a little birdie at Notre Dame email me yesterday. It's rare that I have been able to do this for your tribe, Todd, and told you something that you are about to be proud of. But a little birdie told me that uh, uh, that's on the faculty at Notre Dame yesterday, sent me an email and said, our provost, our provost told us in, uh, in a, a private inside meeting yesterday that if they knew what they know now about COVID back in March, that it never shut the university down. At all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> depending on what part of the country you live in, do we follow science or do we follow science? Do we uh, uh, politicize this virus? This is why you want to take advantage of this opportunity from Patriot Mobile before it expires. It's their school days promotion where they want to help uh, you and the student in your life. Uh, until September the 12th, you can choose either a free phone or a free month of service. When you switch to America's only conservative cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, uh, and they won't charge you hidden fees or use your money uh, to support left-wing propaganda. Instead, they're going to donate a portion of your bill to Students for Life. So you'll get the same reliable nationwide service but you're also going to get a company that supports your values switching is easy you can keep your phone number bring your own phone you can even buy a new one if you would like call 972 patriot right now use the promo code steve to take advantage of this school days promotion 972 patriot or you can go to their website patriotmobile.com slash steve that's patriotmobile.com slash steve here's aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away what happened while we were away brought to you by another banner day for joe biden and stop your boast about never being seemed at what you 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 can do anything you're you you always talk about your ability to negotiate negotiate a deal a deal for somebody other than yourself now i'm happy to uh take questions you may have i guess staff's going to call on whoever follow fire away president trump meanwhile spoke to a crowd in north carolina yesterday we're deeply moved to be joined this afternoon by world war ii veterans all of whom i've met all of whom are tough i don't want to mess around with any of them you are amazing i promised him i would not tell that he's 97 years old i promised 
I'll tell you, he's 100% sharp. He's 100% sharp. I know a 78-year-old that's not so sharp. Nancy Antoinette held a news conference yesterday regarding her trip to a local hairstylist against San Francisco's lockdown rules and without wearing a mask. Surprise, surprise, she says she's the victim. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times. And that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time and that we can set up that time, I trusted that. As it turns out, it was a setup. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. And that's all I'm going to say on that. We'll stay in California where Senate Bill 145 will go to the desk of Governor Gavin Newsom. The bill lowers penalties for adults who have sex with quote-unquote willing same-sex minors. Essentially, the bill all but decriminalizes pedophilia as long as it's gay pedophilia. The New York Times published a hit piece on the newest member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Scott Atlas of Stanford. Headline and subhead reads, A new coronavirus advisor roils the White House with unorthodox ideas. Dr. Scott Atlas arrived at the White House as a coronavirus contrarian questioning controls like masks. He has angered top health officials while pushing a suite of disputed policy prescriptions. This comes the same week the Washington Post published a hit piece on Atlas as well. A new study from the Indiana University School of Medicine shows an infection fatality rate for COVID-19 of 0.26% or the same as a bad flu season. That figure, 0.26%, also just so happens to be nearly the exact number Stanford epidemiologist Dr. John Ioannidis predicted back in March would be the final IFR for COVID-19. In other news, St. Louis, Missouri Mayor Lida Cruzen has temporarily relocated after her home was the target of rowdy demonstrators recently. This comes the same day Portland, Oregon Mayor Ted Wheeler also announced he's moving. His downtown Portland condo has been the target of rioters for the past several days. Van Jones, your thoughts? I think it's time for us to uh, recognize we we are in a very perilous situation uh, if you want to see a change in November. Um, We have two social movements. Uh, Both have edges of violence to them, one on the left, one on the right. I think it's baked in that Donald Trump is is not going to challenge uh, very strongly the police violence or the vigilante violence, and a lot of people, frankly, are comfortable with that. The question is, how are Democrats and progressives going to deal with the edges of violence in our own movement? I think that Joe Biden can reach, can can actually begin to move his own movement in a better direction. Uh, We need a national moratorium on these nighttime marches. A Breitbart investigation into the background of Jacob Blake, the man who was shot by Kenosha, Wisconsin police last week, which set off a days of rioting and violence, has revealed that his father, Jacob Blake Sr., has a long history of posting vile rhetoric on social media. Blake Sr. has allegedly posted things like, a Jew can't tell me S-word, period, and, quote, the same pink-toed Jewish people that control the interest rate control the media, they control minds and money, and a laundry list of other racist, anti-Semitic content. More on that on today's Overtime. And finally, a cause we can all rally behind. Andrew Christensen, a resident of Lincoln, Nebraska, made a plea to his city council recently. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. 
I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them buffalo style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long and we know it because we feel it in our bones. And that's what happened while we were away. Is that the most meaningful political speech of 2020? It could be. Not all heroes wear capes. Indeed. Um, I don't, dude, Nebraska, man. You guys are killing it this year, right? You're on the cutting edge of bring me my Big Ten football and now you're you're writing past wrongs and transgressions. I mean, give it up for the state of Nebraska. Have a year, yo. Oh, no kidding. Hey, um, just like us, dogs have all sorts of complex nutritional needs. They need vitamins, minerals, uh, nutrients, antioxidants, probiotics, omega oils, all that good stuff. Things they would typically get if they were still in the wild and weren't domestic domesticated, but they're domestic food, you know, like that kibble and bit stuff. Well, it's dead. All that good stuff is out of there. It's been sterilized so that it will have a long shelf life. That's where Rough Greens comes in. It isn't a dog food. It's a supplement that you sprinkle on the food your dog already loves. And it's full of the things that will make your dog healthier and happier, and maybe they'll even love your food better. That's the case in the story with our dog, Cap, who takes this stuff every day. Take the Rough Greens 14-Day Jumpstart Challenge today for just $14.95 and see the difference in your dog in 14 days or less. If you want to see if uh, your dog can thrive more than ever before, go to roughgreens.com slash blaze. R-U-F-F is how it's spelled, roughgreens.com slash blaze. Let's get to Aaron's montage. He's already teased that we're going to get more in to uh, Blake Sr.'s um, social media posts coming up a little bit later on. Uh, uh, and that will be in the overtime today. BlazeTV.com slash Dace. BlazeTV.com slash Dace. That's where you can go to subscribe so that you don't miss overtime today. If you're already a Blaze TV subscriber, thank you. Uh, just go to that same website later today. You'll be able to watch it coming up uh, later this afternoon. Um... You've heard me say for years that the new progressivism is really just the old paganism. We're not, we're not, we're not advancing. If you look at, um, if you if you look at the morality that it is promoting, we're not. It, it's not taking us anywhere new. It's returning us to somewhere old. It's returning us to the places that Western civilization made the decision. Um, yeah, that's that's not a good way to sustain yourself, and. What California advocated yesterday is an ancient practice known as pederasty. What, and there's, there's different forms of pederasty. Um, 
one of the forms that was common in the old pagan world, uh, the pre-Christian world, it's, it's alluded to actually in the movie Spartacus alludes to it. But one of the, one of the things that was done was, was essentially the coaching of same-sex concubines but into a willing, a willing life of doing this, where an older, same-sex, homosexual-attracted male would, and I think, wasn't this the movie Call Me By Your Name was about this a few years ago, right? I believe so. Um, he would essentially mentor a young buck into this type of sexuality. Now, Western civilization decided that that was at best creeper and at worst assault. But the old paganism uh, is just returning to its roots. That, that's what California, first of all, who would define what is a willing minor? Who defines that? How is that quantified? Um, if they're, if, if, if they're able to give consent, then just lower the age of consent. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they just lower the age of consent to 13 or 14? Why didn't they do that? Do you guys know why they didn't do that? I'll ask Lord Nefarious. Uh, he's about to tell you. Because that would cause an instantaneous backlash. That's, that's why. That would... That would cause an instantaneous backlash. Because that's easy for people to quantify. As. So. Kevin Warren's kid can play football in the SEC, but my kid can't play in the Big Ten. So. Um, Nancy Pelosi can go get a haircut without a mask indoors, but I can't go anywhere indoors without a mask in California. So. If I have sex with a 15-year-old girl, that's statutory rape. But if you are a gay man that has sex with a 15-year-old boy, it's not. See what I'm saying? Yeah. These are easy things to identify as horsepucky. Easy things, easy things to blow up the narrative with. This is Orwellian newspeak. What is, what is, a, a, what's a sexually willing minor? Well, we already know what that is. It's why we, it, we have this term already. It's called an age of consent. This is being done purposefully in order to blur these lines. For example, there was about four or five years ago, a case, I think in Michigan is what it was. Yeah, it was in Michigan of a teacher that had been charged with sexually assaulting one of his students. Do you remember this case? We talked about it at the time. At his sentencing, several of his former teachers went there and pled for mercy before the court on the grounds that... This was a wanted sexual advance by the by the the the, the male minor that he had sex with. It was a wanted sexual advance. the The boy was a was beyond the age of consent, and therefore there was nothing wrong with this relationship. Do you remember the story? We talked about this at that time. Said it was setting the stage for conversations like this. Would if this if it was a wanted fee, if it was a female student, and the teacher was up for sentencing for um, living out uh, uh, the police's don't stand so close to me, puts the book by Nabokov down and decides, you know what, why not? 
with the, with a student. Would a bunch of teachers had lined up at his sentencing to say, you know, she wanted it. Would they have ever done that in a million years, Todd? I don't think so. No, not in a trillion years would that occur. So what's different about this? Well, one form of practice is politically correct and the other is not. One form of practice is given us a certain special place of prominence in the society for acceptance and has a lot of political power behind it and the other doesn't. That's, that's why. And that's, that's what's happening here in California. This is just the next step in a devolution. So this is actually pederasty is what we're talking about. Pedophilia will be next, by the way. That will come next, but you got you to take a step there. And so what is to stop somebody from that? See, it was actually called a pedophilia scandal in the Catholic Church. But in many cases, what was going on there was this practice, pedophilia, where priests, or I'm sorry, pederasty, where priests were coaching pubescent altar, altar boys into this lifestyle. And then years later, they said, hey, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to be. You abused me. That's what's going to happen here. That, that's exactly what's going to happen here. And that's what, what California essentially did was codify into law the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. That's, that's what they did. Yeah, there was hardly any actual pedophilia within that mm-hmm. whole scandal. You are absolutely right on that. Pedophilia is prepubescence, okay? Get, hey, learn these terms. Learn them well. You're going to need them in the time that we are embarking upon. You will need to know the language, the lingo. Pedophilia means prepubescence. Pederasty is the mentoring and coaching and procuring of those who are already of age. It's remarkable. As exhausting as the pandemic and the BLM riots have been, and as long, and, and we have no idea where they're ending, they're really like this, they're just a large pause button on this slippery mm-hmm. slope that you've been doing for your entire media career. Because the slippery slope argument, brother, is it's it, outside of the word of God, the only other undefeated argument in the cosmos is the slippery slope argument. Because we, we, outside of the, you know why? Because outside of the word of God, we cannot restrain ourselves. We cannot contain ourselves. And so the slippery slope wins. We'll get to the end of the story every single time. We, we can't ever mm-hmm. just on our way down, we can't ever just kind of stop halfway and say, that doesn't mean we can't on an individual level. That's not what I'm talking about here. Okay. Um, I mean, on a corporate level, as a, a culturally, as a species, is what I'm talking about. As a species, we once we start the descent, we're going all the way down to the bottom where those really scaly, creepy, uh, you know, el- uh, unevolved albinos live. If you remember the movie The Descent, okay, <laughs> that's where we end up. We end up down there as a, cor- corporately as a species. That doesn't mean every time one of us acts out in a way that's bad, that that means we just, the next step's the bottom and I'm in a sex trafficking ring. That's not what it means. I don't mean for us as individuals. We are all fighting our own demons. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is corporately as a species. Once we corporately as a species head down the, head down the road, somebody within, that, within our, our, our peer group is going to say, hey guys, last one to the bottom's a rotten egg. I mean, that, that's, that's how we roll. And, and that's been the course of our 6,000 plus years of recorded history on this planet. That's how it ends. Um, the New York Times hit piece on Scott Atlas is very good news. 
and I don't have anything else to add. That's just very good news. Leaving uh, a mark. Yep, yep. Leaving. That's right. Uh, making all the right enemies. That's so very good. Thank you. Uh, we, that further confirmation that was a good hire. So we can just move on. Um, I don't even know what to say about these Biden clips anymore. I know you guys told me the other day, hey, he's running for president, man. They're trying to convince you to entrust your future to this guy's diminished mental capacity. This isn't just, you know, the old man across the street that, you know, you used to have over, you know, for neighborhood gatherings and now he's lost his marbles and you're, you're, you're giving him an immense amount of mercy because therefore by the grace of God, one day goes you, right? I mean, I understand he's running for the most powerful office on the planet. I, I just, I'm having a hard time personally pouncing on this like I would in a lot of other circumstances. I just find it so sad. I just, I find it sad for us as a people. And how about Skynet's evolving over there, man, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Was that Donald flipping Trump dropping some self-deprecating humor? Or did, or did my ears and eyes oh, deceive me? Oh, he's making me? fun of Biden. Okay, never mind that. Exactly. Um, you, you, I set that up for you, Aaron, and you knocked it down. Very well done. You didn't even know that pitch was coming. No, I didn't. No, you didn't even know that pitch was coming. Well done. Now, see, I'm uncomfortable with the conversation, even though I, I was actually one of the first people that went there. I went there on the show like eight months ago before anybody talked about this. We were going there. This guy's got dementia. He's not there. But, but now that it's becoming increasingly obvious again, I, I'm... But that's when we said there were zero odds of him being president. <clears throat> yes. And now here we sit. I, I'm just having a hard time with it. Even though I, I recognize it has to be a major component of this campaign. He's running for president. It's clear he's not mentally competent to do the job. If you believe otherwise, you're lying to yourself. It's clear that he's not. Okay? So let's just all... Again, I, I, I'm fine with a civil war. I really am. Just don't pee on me and tell me it's raining in the process, okay? And it, it, just tell me, you know, back in the old original six days of the NHL, what would happen is the second guy in to a fight would always get the biggest fine. And so when there was a fight out on the ice, what would happen is all the players would take the backup goalie, throw him over the boards. So he was the <laughs> second guy in. He would get the big fine, so then they could all jump in and, the, and get involved in the fight as well. And then afterwards, when the fine came down from the, from the league, they'd all split the cost of the fine so that the backup goalie wouldn't have to pay it. Did you know that? I don't think I did. Yeah, that's how they used to roll in the old days of the National Hockey League. Now, why do I bring that up right now? Because that's what the Democratic Party has done here. They, they just took a backup goalie who is way past his prime, threw him over the boards, so that, that, so that he would be the front for them to then jump over the boards and get involved in the melee. He's a front. And I think that's why this has to be. We would, I'm uncomfortable with it now because it's becoming increasingly obvious and I don't know how to talk about it without being mean. But I think we have to talk about it because we all know what it means. It means that Somebody behind him is really running this country if he wins here on, in 61 days. Ain't going to be him. I mean, he can't. I mean, yesterday he was literally reading. Here's the top line message. He was reading the talking points his staff gave him. 
verbatim, like right off a script, except not the part that you're supposed to read. It was the part that they told him what the top line message was. And, he's, and he read, here's the top line message and then read the top line message right off the script. I mean, the clip you just saw today. All right, my staff is going to decide who we're going to call upon. We all know it, okay? I know that you know, and you know that I know that I know, okay? So, Norton, don't pee on me and tell me it's right, okay? Otherwise, we're going to go Eddie Murphy delirious up in here. Let's just all admit you threw him over the boards so that all of your left-wing groups could be really calling the shots behind the scenes and jump over the glass and get involved in the melee. Let's just be honest about it, okay? Sure. He's the perfect, pliable front pitch man for your base, and let's just be honest about that. Don't lie to me. Okay? Just don't. Just tell the truth. He's just here, you know, so that we don't get fined. That's that's why he's here. We throw him over the boards, and then we jump in the fight. We're really the ones doing all the fighting here, but we throw him over the boards first. He kind of gives us the cover then to come over the glass. That's what's going on. And so you have to ask yourself, who are the people and the movements behind the scenes? And I think that could be an added layer here to why the latest rounds of, of, of riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, have been so damaging to Democrats. Because just as the Comey letter reinforced one final time you know Hillary Clinton's like the worst, right? Like the worst. And I think a whole bunch of people that didn't want to vote for Donald Trump were like, dude, she's the worst. We just can't really do this, can we? I think the riots in a place like Kenosha, because a lot of people that are either willing to vote for Trump or aren't communists and don't want to have to vote for Trump live in a place like Kenosha, Wisconsin, yeah. right? Okay. They don't live in a place like Portland, Oregon, frankly, and they don't live in a place like Los Angeles and they don't live in a place like New York City. They live in a place like, or even Minneapolis, Minnesota, for that matter. Uh, they live in the rest of Minnesota, but not in Minneapolis. They live in a place like Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I think the riots happening there did for the Biden campaign what the Comey letter did to the Hillary campaign. On top of hey, this could happen here. That means anywhere people like us want to live, it could happen. I think the other thing it did was, dude, these are the people that are probably running the country if we vote for Joe Biden. Let's just be honest about that. And then you start doing the math again. Whatever 9 million problems I may have with Donald Trump at the moment. Do I want the people that organized riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where we arrested people from 44 different locations? 44 different locations represented in the arrests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. How many, how many weeks, how many weekends do we have to go to get to 44 arrests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Todd? Period. 44 arrests, do you think, in a place like Kenosha? Right. Let alone from 44 different locations in one week. And I do wonder if a bunch of people said, dude, let's be honest with ourselves. Uh, Professor Forget-Me-Not ain't running the country if we vote for this guy. Probably the people behind these people are. People funding these people are, right? I think that's an added extra layer of this conversation, don't you? Oh, I absolutely do. And, you know, like you said, we've been doing this for eight months. I think that's the number you put out regarding Biden when we came to peace with that. You you realize most of, 
of, of the American voters right now who aren't keeping track of this on a daily basis have this idea in their head of Joe Biden as Uncle Joe, somebody that's been rejected for president multiple times, but you kind of had an idea who he was and you haven't really been paying attention. I think the Band-Aid is being ripped off in a way that the three of us haven't experienced and many of the listeners of this show, and they had no idea the level of decline. I think they're seeing it the first time right now in the midst of this, and it's all hitting them at once. And th- th- there's no way they can make the math work. I can't. I can't be a part of that. He's he 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 shouldn't be having. You know, he shouldn't be driving. He shouldn't be out in public right. alone, let right. alone running for president. Right. I think that's hitting him full force right now. I agree. Which is why you're seeing this desperate attempt. I don't know if you guys have have seen this as well. There's this. Uh, desperate attempt to uh, pounce on some of Trump's comments uh, in the last uh, few days about, well, uh, you know, if mail-in voting is really great and the system is really great, you should go, you should go mail in your vote for me, and then you should pull, show up at the polling place and make sure that they have your ballot. And they're turning that into they're they're desperately desperately trying to get away. Uh, from this, and you heard Van Jones' comments as well, echoing what Don Lemon said last week as well. These riots are killing us. We've got to figure out something. And I think it's too late for them. We'll come back. We'll play our little game of three non-political questions. But first, before we do that, when we return, I want to share an email I just received from an attorney in the office or in the audience. Okay? Stay tuned for that here in a moment. Hey, what does COVID-19 have to do with losing your home? Well, it turns out it could be a lot. Uh, the FBI has reported since we began doing lockdowns for the virus, cybercrime is up 75%. Why does that matter? Well, because one of the leading cybercrimes right now is called home title theft. Our legal titles are all kept online and cyber criminals find the title to your home online, forge your signature on a quit claim deed and refile as the new owner of your home. And then suddenly you're off the title and that can destroy you. Uh, they can take out loans against your home, steal your equity, uh, stick you with all of the payment payments. You may not even know about this until you get a late payment notice, <clears throat> maybe even a foreclosure notice in the mail. Home Title Lock, though, is going to protect you from this. Your home is your most valuable asset. So Home Title Lock is going to put a virtual barrier around it in order for them, if they detect any tampering, to mobilize right away to shut it down. But first things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim. And then while you're there, use the promo code Steve for 30 free days of protection. That's the promo code Steve at HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Before we get to three non-political questions, I I just received an email from an attorney in the office. Her name is uh, Rebecca. She's based out of New York. And she she wanted to ask about what we were talking about with California and their new pederasty law. If a 15-year-old girl identifies as a boy, would, would that be okay in California as well? Or what if there's a debate? What if that's the new defense? Well, it's a girl, but they identified as a boy, right? Yeah. Or years later, 
I went through a period of time where I'm a girl and I, I thought I was a boy. I had gender dysphoria. Uh, I've had counseling. It's treated. I, you know, I embrace my femininity and he assaulted me. And his defense is, well, the time that this occurred, she identified as a boy. <clears throat> Do you see, folks? I know you see. That's why you're watching a show like this. But this is why Western civilization established these norms. It wasn't capricious. We didn't just, hey, let's, you know, have a drawing. Uh, <laughs> Puritans today. Your new game show. New restrictions. Okay. And, you know, I think the Puritans get a bad rap anyway, but we, we, we came up with these barriers, the, these regulations, laws, mores, to avoid quagmires like this, to avoid situations like this. We, we did these things so that we, we had these traditions so that things like this would not happen. So we're, we're not doing a new progressivism. We're doing the old paganism. It's time for three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, three non-political questions because we do need a little bit of a break from that old paganism. That uh, dominates our discourse seemingly nowadays. Uh, three non-political questions. Uh, question number one. What are two songs that were great, but now you hate them because they were overplayed? Two songs that I thought were great at the time, but now I hate them because they're overplayed? I, I don't know if I can come up with two songs. I mean... Uh, Ron just whispered in my ear, hey Jude, that's the number one selling single the Beatles ever had. So no, I'm not putting that on the list. But um, I, I could go like the other way, probably. <clears throat> A little bit easier. Come up with songs that I hated at the time because they were overplayed and then years later I'm like, they're not so bad. But I'd, I'd have to think about that as well. But two songs, do you have a couple you like to get chomping well, no, at but the I'm bit? Like I'm chomping at the bit because you're a self-admitted former, well, you're still a music snob, but you're... You're a different I'm kind recovering, of... I'm yeah, recovering music snob, yes. But you, weren't you the kind of guy that thought, like, I, this is a great song before anybody else, and then once it played on the radio, would hate it just because more people liked it? No. That no. wasn't you? No, I would, it was confirmation that I was correct. <laughs> See, I told How you... How did you even do that? <laughs> yes. See, that I told was you. like Jedi Master yes. level yeah, something I, I, there. I, I took that as confirmation that I was right. Yeah. <laughs> I told you that was a great song. Should have listened to me. No, well, actually, that's I used to. I had a friend. I still love him to this day. But it was like it. Once things became popular, he had to hate them just because he couldn't be 
you know, around the hoi polloi. It drove me nuts. Yeah, I'm not into that. How did that. this song just suddenly start sucking because other people like it? Yeah, I, I, I see my snobbishness comes from I don't mind being number one. I just want to be number one first. If I wasn't number one first, then, you know, I urinate excellence. Um, you know, second place is just the first loser. So I'm fine with it with being number dude. I'm the guy that prefers Taco Bell to authentic Mexican food. I am the ugly American. And because I am the ugly American, I am fine with the things I like crossing over into mainstream acceptance and popularity. I just want to be the one that liked them first. If I didn't like them first, then, you know, I, then I, I, I don't glom on. I don't bandwagon jump. Okay. But I had to like them first. There's one song I can think of. And love and hate are both too strong, but it's it it as close as I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, when that okay. came out, it was like, yeah, this is and and it's it's clearly not a bad song, but that thing for whatever reason wore out its welcome. You know what? Maybe I can come up with a band. Can I do that? Sure. Okay, to answer your question, well, that's easier. Okay, because that, I. I, I was always growing up because it's more my age group. I was always more Van ha- Van Hagar than Van Halen. All right, like I liked the um, I, I especially post pre nineteen eighty four, which was kind of the the best selling album that Van Halen had in the David Lee Roth era. That has their first number one song, "Jump" is on it. I think the best song. Uh, that Van Halen ever did is on that album Panama, but I'll get to that. That's part of ever it. ever. I think that's their best song ever. Ooh, I do. That's, okay. that's but cool. I was more into Van Hagar because that hit right when I was coming through middle school. You know what I'm saying? Love Van Hagar. And you, you know, so 5150, and oh, then yeah. for unlawful carnal knowledge, got you through I high saw school. Him live in concert. Yep. So, and I still like Van Hagar quite a bit. But as I've when I got a, when I got a little bit older, I went back and listened to some old school. Um, original pre nineteen eighty four Van Halen again. There was a there was like an one of those add on. No, it was a version of the Guitar Hero game, Van, Van Halen Guitar Hero. And because they were still really mad at Sammy Hagar, almost all the songs on there were the or were the old uh, David Lee Roth era tunes. And so playing that and and mastering that game, I, I gained a a new different uh, a, a strange new respect for the pre nineteen eighty four era of Van Halen. For me, it was a couple of songs from my from my college days because I listened to a lot of music radio then. Uh, fun, the band Fun exclamation point, or maybe it's just a period. Uh, Some nights that one was played like every five minutes, I, and it was a great song. But just you loathe it now. It's like when you it's like when you um, you know eat any any type of really sweet kind of candy and you just gorge yourself on it. Uh, not that I've ever done that, but you just kind of loathe it after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fun, uh, some nights. And then uh, th- there's a few Maroon 5 songs that could uh, be on this uh, list, but moves like Jagger for some reason. I-, I thought it was a great song, and then it was just overplayed all, all too much. Question number two. This one should be good. What do you believe is the greatest professional sports gaffe of all time? Professional sports gaffe. Yeah, professional cannot be sports. at the college level. But it can be any sport at the professional level. Leon let that Thanksgiving game yeah. against the Dolphins is on the list. Um, who was the guy, the purple people leaders for the Vikings who ran the wrong way? It was uh, Carl Ellis, I think, was the one that did that. <clears throat> Bill so that, Buckner. That's on the list. Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner. That's the most tragic one. Yeah. I mean, that 
he wore changed that. his entire life. It did, but he wore yeah. it about as possible as you could. The Buckner one is a really good one. Because he was a great baseball yes, player. Yes, he was. That is often forgotten how good he was. Yeah. Um, the Buckner one is a really good and one. And he was, I mean, he was a physical shell of himself. If you know what Todd is talking about, it's the 1986 World Series. Red Sox are poised to finally end the curse of the Bambino. And there's a little dribbler. Who's hitting? I think it was from Mookie Wilson, Mookie wasn't Wilson? it? Yeah. A little dribble up the first baseline. And I mean, when I say dribbler, yeah. we're talking a dribbler. Okay. And, um, he just let it go through his legs. Ray Knight rounds third, scores the winning run. And that was actually game six. six. Yeah. So they could have come back and won game seven. They had the lead again in game seven, if I remember right. And they ended up losing that game too. So that that is an all-time gaffe. What was the year that um, Greg Norman had the, the monster lead at the, mm-hmm. at the Masters and blew that? Remember that? I do. I don't remember the year. It was just yes. like, it almost seemed like an insurmountable lead. Because that was the one that was the one tournament he could never win was Augusta, and he blew that one. I remember that. I so I would have that one on my list somewhere too. Um, that's a really good question. You're right. That is a that is a good question. How about Brett Favre instead of throwing the ball out of bounds yeah. in the NFC Championship game against the Saints, throwing it back and just taking us taking a loss. And the Vikings just win that game. He throws it into the scrum, and the Saints pick it off and go on and win. You know, that's that's another one that just recently came to mind as well. You have any others? I I don't. And Buckner came so quickly to me; it's definitive to me. I mean, I remember that. Yep. Yep. That's a uh, good one. I, I think. I mean, I I don't remember this obviously, but looking back on it, and of course, the Chiefs have some some issues with uh, kicking field goals in postseason games. But Lynn we won't talk about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, especially well. since they've already won, won the Super Bowl. But Gary Anderson. Uh, for the Minnesota Vikings. Only kick he missed all season. Only extra He was perfect he yeah. all year. He missed the field goal yeah. in the Metrodome that in the NFC Championship game. Gut-wrenching. And the Falcons came back Uh-oh. and did the dirty bird and, and pulled off and, a big upset. And that's yeah. bad, but it, it, don't you have to see him and raise him with um, wide right Scott Norwood and the Bills? That's I mean, in the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, he, his career was that's, never the same after and that. And the Bills, even that's they a, made it back three more times, but they yeah. kept losing worse and worse. I mean, they couldn't. They couldn't close the deal. That could be maybe maybe that's number two behind Buckner in in recent memory. Yeah, that's well, that's a good job. Yeah. Question number three: If you could live on any fictional planet, which one would you choose and why? Any fictional planet. Um, like Krypton before it exploded, maybe sure. something like that. Um, I'd be fascinated to live on Vulcan just to see what it is. Is it really? Is life really better if you just remove all emotion? If you just remove it all, what is that like? <laughs> um, I can tell you that it is. Yes, <laughs> nice. Um, so, I mean, those would probably be um, my top two choices. Probably those. Uh, I, I feel like I'm missing an obvious one. Thor's planet. Oh, you're talking about. Um, Asgard. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad choice. Sure. That seemed pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's a pretty good choice. I think for me, it'd be Kashyyyk. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, just a, just an enormous yeah, planet. Man. One large, essentially forest jungle type thing. That would be amazing with some nice sandy beaches. Not, not too many humans, though. That's okay. Do I look wanna, like, you, do you, I look like the type of guy who needs a lot of humans? It's so funny. <laughs> 
yesterday in the car that i had to commit myself i wasn't going to say it anymore after yesterday because on the way home i was just it kept popping in my head like i was in high school again and like you know you and your buddies like all we did was talk in like naked gun speak yes. i like yeah. the day show is going to become this every day if i allow it but apparently aaron has committed to making it live on forever i i got i received several emails from people <laughs> yesterday who uh, who enjoyed and, and laughed out loud at that interaction Hey, you know, trying to sell your home is challenging in any environment. You want to make sure you line up with an agent who can come in and take charge of the situation for you. Where would you find that agent? And how do you know you can trust them? Well, you know, the name kind of says it all. Go to the website, realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, that's realestateagentsitrust.com. Only agents who have been vetted fully with a proven track record of success get listed on that website and you can find one of those agents you can trust all over the country no matter where you live well i shouldn't say there might be like one remote place you want to move to that we haven't found somebody yet all right but most places you would want to live although remote places starting to sound a lot better these days most places you'd want to live you're going to find the agent that you can trust at realestateagentsitrust.com again that's realestateagentsitrust.com all right next hour we're going to get into some theology thursday and we're gonna um, we're gonna have a very practical conversation for that. Uh, um, and it's eschatology. Go. I said practical. <laughs> um, but it's it's also uh, I think a question that applies with a lot of the new fads and philosophies. Uh, or what Paul would describe, how did he describe it? Uh, idle chatter, useless mm -hmm. genealogies. Is that the phrasing he uses in the New Testament? Yeah, we, we're going to live in a time now as we revert to more of the old paganism that a lot of these uh, questions are going to come up. And I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to use an example out of my own life where I almost blew it because I wasn't, in, I was new at this and I wasn't entirely sure what I was talking about, even though the principle of what I was discussing was certainly uh, biblically sound. If you're, if you have a New Testament view of things, you probably remember what I'm talking about, but I, I really didn't understand the ramifications of what I was talking about. And in order to try to make this situation right, I was I, I was put in a position where I had to go meet with people who disagreed with me on this. And an old friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago, I dedicated my last book, Truth Bombs, to him, gave me some advice because he, he himself had been in a lot of situations like this. So he gave me some advice of how to handle it. And that advice, man, it worked like a charm. And I'm going to pass it on to the rest of you for Theology Thursday. And then South Dakota Governor Christy Nome is going to join us at the very final segment of the program as well. So one more hour to go here, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Stay tuned.
back at it here with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Totters and Aaron McIntyre and all of you. Don't forget, you can let us know what you think about what we think, and we're just one day away from a Feedback Friday when we get to the feedback you've sent to us. Via the SteveDace.com inbox, it's Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, Parlor at Steve Dace, and check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. If you're a podcast listener, please don't feel slighted. We appreciate you very, very much. Just make sure if you appreciate us that you hit the subscribe button on whichever uh, podcasting platform you choose to use and then leave us a five-star review if you like the show. If you don't, that's fine. Don't lie, but maybe keep that to yourself. If you like the show, just kind of embellish though. I mean, really just kind of exaggerate how much you like us because the more of those five-star reviews we get the more it helps the show to grow thousands of you have left us five-star reviews already we want to thank you for each and every one of those and hopefully we can have a few thousand more um before we get to theology thursday one last thing from your montage that i think we have to highlight is that indiana university study on the infection fatality rate yep and can we before you Infection versus case fatality rate. Thank you. Uh, case fatality rate is is just a simple dividing the number of known cases by the amount of known deaths. Okay? It is not the greatest and most accurate way to determine how terrible or, or lethal a pandemic is, but it, it gives you kind of a baseline if you're in the general population, you don't have access to the most stratified or the most um, robust data that's out there. All right. So it's it's a little bit like, let me give you an analogy. Thank you for bringing this up, Aaron. The difference between a CFR and an IFR, when you and I were growing up, man, all we cared about was your batting average, home runs, and RBIs, right? right. Okay. For a pitcher, your one loss record and your ERA, right. right? Okay. That's what a case fatality rate is. We got our baseball cards. We looked on the back, and and did that give you a good baseline of how good of a play, how good a player was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it an accurate baseline of how good they were? Sure, but was it a complete analysis of how good they were? Right. A deeper for, dive was clearly possible. For example, I, I talked. I made the comparison between Donald Trump and Cecil Fielder yesterday. And when you have, and I, I, I saw every game Cecil Fielder played in a Troy Tiger uniform because I grew up watching, and every game was on TV, and I went to a lot of them, and he was a, you know, it was going in the in the in the upper deck, or he was likely striking out, and I got an email from somebody who said, hey, if you're going to use that that analogy, a better analogy would be Dave Kingman. All right, now who is Dave Kingman? Dave Kingman is one of the few people that's hit over 400 home runs that's not in the Hall of Fame, and he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. Why? Because he struck out, struck out 75,000 times, all right? He's barely, the Mendoza line, the 200 uh, batting average, I think he's barely above that for his career. That's what Dave Kingman was known for, right? And he played a lot of his career in, I think it was Seattle, if I remember right? So the Old Kingdome. He played on was, the Mets, right? Yeah, which was a launching pad in the Old Kingdome there. Uh, the old Shea Stadium could be a launching pad too, with the winds coming in from uh, from the from oh, from the from the water and with the airports and everything else. It was kind of a runway back in the day, and so he would just go up there, dude, and just swing for the fences on every pitch. All right. So when you just looked, at, if you just looked at Dave Kingman's top line, 
400 some odd home runs, you're like, wow, this guy's a really underrated player. He is an underrated player. We would agree on that, right? You had 400 home runs in the, in the major leagues, dude. That's legit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that is a legit thing to accomplish. But if 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 he were on the free agent market, and and now he's asking me for 15, 20, 25 million a year because he's going to hit 35 to 40 bombs, I then have to ask myself as the general manager, is that enough bang for my buck given the offsets that go along with this? And so that's where stats like wins against replacement, OPS, all right, the, the stats that you hear talked about today, um, we didn't talk about these stats back in the day. We didn't we didn't really know what they were. You know, nowadays you, you can be Felix Hernandez and win a Cy Young win in 12 games because the rest of your metrics are so dominant. But but if there was no way you could not strike out enough players to win a, a Cy Young when we were kids, Todd, with 12 wins, right? I think that's true. You yeah. just couldn't do it. I mean, there were years that you could have like a four, like almost a four ERA. I think that was Bob Welch or somebody one year for the A's, but he won like 28 games, so he wins the Cy Young. Because also back in those days, we didn't have um, six inning starts. You pitched until you were no longer good, then they went to the bullpen. It wasn't like it was plotted out, just get to the sixth or seventh inning and we'll take the bully from there. That's not the way that it worked back in the day. Guys like Bruce Suter, Willie Hernandez, Goose Gossage would get two or three inning saves. That's unheard of today, right? Middle reliever, we were like, that's the last pitcher to make the squad was the middle reliever when we were kids. Now you can be the Kansas City Royals and win World Series because your middle relievers are dope. It's a different game. And so it's it, and so the, the IFR is that extra layer of stats. It's your wins against replacements, your OPSs, your quality start, the other new, new realm of stats. Doesn't mean home runs, RBIs, and, and, and batting average doesn't matter. Like one year, the year that Miguel Cabrera had the triple crown, I think, what's his face for the Angels, I think had the greatest wins against replacement of all time or something that same season. And so there was a big debate about whether he's the MVP. No, he's not. If you win the triple crown, we don't go to the second layer of stats. We stop there. Do not pass go. And we just, right, we just stop there. Okay, but if you need to know more, infection fatality rate gives you a more complete picture because now we're taking a look. We have to identify what is and what isn't an infection. And if you look at what Indiana University put out there, it, it actually is exactly what our CDC had about two months ago before they took heat and they, they took it off the table. CDC about two months ago said that the IFR for COVID-19 was about 0.26. Remember this? Because we made a big deal about it at the time. Yeah. And then like a week later, they decided, no, it's really 0.65. Which is still substantially lower than what Anthony Fauci was selling us back in March when we shut the country down. All right? But if it's 0.26, then it, it, it's, it's a worse virus than the flu for some people, okay? The flu is worse for you if you're younger. If you have an immune deficiency, this is a worse virus for you than the flu is. But we're not talking about treating individual patients here. We're talking about a macro corporate public policy for 331 million people. All right? And when you're talking about an IFR, an infection fatality rate of 0.26, we don't put 40 million people on the unemployment line, all right, and, and shut playgrounds down because of an infection fatality rate of 0.26, guys. We don't do that. That's that that's like a really terrible 2018 flu season. 
And so what Indiana, so what, C, what CDC found after they did their initial batch of antibody testing, which wasn't nationwide, but was in certain pockets around the country, what they found is that there were 11 to 24 times more infections that showed up in the antibody tests, meaning people that showed rates of antibodies that indicated a previous infection of COVID that was not caught as a confirmed case, Okay. What they found is that there were 11 to 24 times more people infected than the testing had, had, had identified. And so the director of CDC, Michael Redfield, just decided to settle on one round number that they were estimating there were 10 times based on that testing. They were estimating 10 times more infections, which is actually lower than what their own actual testing found. It was 11 to 24 times. But they were going to go with the, with, with the metric that there's 10 times more infections than we have been able to catch with our testing. Well, if you apply that to the current number of confirmed cases, if you multiply it by 10, in fact, let's, let's just do it right now. Aaron, give me the, give me the current case count of, okay. of, of that we are saying claiming, and we're not going to adjust for any of the New York Times' story on the flawed metrics and the, you know, any of that. We're just going to go with the numbers face value. What's our current caseload for coronavirus right now? 6.13 million. All right. So cumulative? S- yes, cumulative. Yeah. The, the, that, it, it, evenly? So 6,130,000 and, and then three more zeros, right? Yep. Okay. 6130. Oh. There we go. All right. So I'm going to times that by 10. I'm going to come up with 61,300,000 actual infections then. This is by the CDC's number. So we've had a total of 6.13 million cases, right? Mm-hmm. CDC says we've had 10 times more infections than cases, which means we've had 61,300,000 infections, all right? What's the total number of coronavirus deaths that we have as of right now? 186,000. 186 Divided by, what was the number again? 61,310,000, right? Um, uh, just 300,000. Okay. That gets me to a 0.3 IFR, which is if you round 0.26 up, it's 0.3, because you round up the six to the next number. So that goes right in line with what, the, with what um, Indiana University has. Okay? Would we have shut the country down for an infection fatality rate that low? Under no circumstances would we have done that. We wouldn't have. And you know what we're finding is the more data that we get, the more the Ioannidis uh, study from the Diamond Princess, which is the, that's the original guinea pig. That's the OG for us. That's the COVID OG is the Diamond Princess. And, and all of the numbers that he extrapolated back in his white paper in March, from, and it all came from that, that test tube. As we get more and more data, it lines up with what he projected in March. You know, you, maybe the guy who is the head of, 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 Population health for Stanford University, a top five med school. Maybe he's kind of smart, huh? Maybe he knows what he's doing with this gig. Because what, he's, what he came up with out of Diamond Princess and extrapolated for 331 million people is pretty much what we've seen now six months into this. And those studies of T-cell immunity that have come out over the last couple of weeks, what was the inference about the percentage of a population? 81%. 81%, but to, to reach herd immunity, it was oh, far the, lower. The it was threshold, about 20. Yeah, that eight, because 81% yeah. of people had some yeah. form, doesn't mean like full resistance, but you had right. some form of ability within your cellular memory to yeah. push back on this virus because you've encountered other 
coronaviruses, okay? Because of that, then the actual threshold, the herd immunity threshold, HIT, what does that mean? It means the point within, within an outbreak when the collective immunity of, of, of who's infected, or who, could, who, who could be exposed, begins to push back on the virus. Or another way of saying it, when an outbreak reaches its max infection and then begins its curve flattening from there is about 18 to 19%. Yeah, so we're basically there. If these cases, which again, that's another box or another can of worms, uh, but if these cases are actually cases, then we're basically at herd immunity. Meanwhile, in an answer to yesterday's question about when uh, Fauci would speak again, you see he's out there already saying the numbers are alarmingly high going into the fall. If only, guys, if only he'd worn his mask at that baseball game, we wouldn't be here right now. Yeah, I but I think he has really been marginalized because of that. Photo. Yeah, I think he. he I think. That moment really marginalized him. And at this point, and now, and it's too late now. The kids are back in school and, and people just now want their lives back. I, I really believe that. I think you're seeing the theaters and everything opening up. San Diego is the first theater chain in California to open up. I, I just think people are just, are just beyond tired of this now and, and want the rest of their lives back. Let's get to Theology Thursday, brought to you by Rough Greens, Vitasmart. Hey, the same reason we take so many supplements these days is why we have to give some to our dogs, because our food has been sterilized of all the good stuff that we need, or at least a lot of the good stuff we need, the prebiotics, the probiotics, the vitamins, minerals, nutrients. And so we got to go out and get supplements to put that stuff back into our regimen. Same thing happens with our pet and its food. It's been sterilized for the exact same reasons, for mass consumption, mass production. Rough Greens, that's where they come in. Uh, They want to put all that good stuff back into your dog's food. It's a powder that you pour over their food, mix it in, and apparently it makes the food that they already like, like even more. At least that's the case at our homestead. Our dog, Cap, loves this stuff. And right now, what they want to do is offer you a 14-day jump start to see if you don't see a positive change in your dog's overall health and outlook in two weeks or less for just $14.95 when you go to roughgreens.com slash blaze. That's R-U-F-F for roughgreens.com slash blaze. For Theology Thursday today, I want to answer this question from Willie Mazenga. Uh, Thank you and your team for putting together uh, the amazing work and effort you guys do to keep us informed and educated. My question for for Theology Thursday is, how do we fight against the BLM agenda that's unfortunately invading our churches and taking advantage of believers who sincerely care about people being abused, mistreated, or discriminated against? I'm seeing well-meaning believers parrot critical race theory and BLM propaganda about this country and about police actually advocating for the defunding of police. So, how would you respond to this? There's going to be many, many more philosophical fads in the era in which we live, right? And, and so what I, the answer I'm about to give is kind of a universal answer to this question. Now, if there are specific challenges of this particular fad to orthodoxy that you would like us to address, we can certainly do that. I mean, each, each, of, each of a culture's particular fads attacks orthodoxy in a different way, right? But there's a but there's an, a meta answer I want to give to this question first. Very early in my sports talk career, right when my show is beginning to take off here locally, I get converted to Christianity. And there was a very good baseball player um, when that very first year after my conversion. In fact, guys, it was like it was like three weeks after my conversion. This, so that three weeks after my conversion, I've done like no serious Bible study. You know, I'm just beginning to do all this stuff, you know, 
but I've got that kind of uh, fever for the flavor of a Pringle. You know what I'm saying, right? I, I come out of getting converted, you know, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to set this town on fire. Where are the Maypoles? Let's tear them down. That's right. That's right. I'm looking for Asherah poles everywhere I can go. All right, let's do this. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. I ain't got time to bleed. Right? Okay. And so there was a very good baseball player at the time named Sean Green uh, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, an all-star first baseman, I believe. And it was uh, right around the time of Yom Kippur. And he was getting, he was really wrestling with whether to play or not. He has traditionally set out, but this year they were in the heated pennant race, him and the Giants, or the Dodgers and the Giants. They were going to play that weekend. Probably who won this series was going to go on and win the division. And he was really wrestling with whether or not to play and it became a story on Sports Center at the time. And and I just came into work that day and um Iowa State was in the midst of a two and ten football season. And I owned the Iowa State fan publication at the time. And I'm like, it's not good for business to keep talking about that. <laughs> All right. I think Iowa was like on a bye week, you know, and I'm like, what am I gonna talk about? And I see this story trending at ESPN.com and I'm like, Dude, that's like right in the wheelhouse of like everything I've been that's going on in my life right now. Let's do that. All right. Didn't really stop and think through the topic. Okay. And went on the air. And what I said was I really admired Sean Green for the stance he was taking to hold himself to a higher standard than just man standard. But if he under but if he would acknowledge that Yeshua which I actually had to look up what Jesus' Jewish name was because I was so nascent at this, I didn't know. But I thought that might give my argument like more credibility if I did that. So I like Googled, you know, what's what's Jesus in Hebrew, okay? Thought that might make it sound like cooler, right? And I didn't know what, uh, um, I didn't really know like about any of the centuries long animosities and everything else between uh, Jews and Christians. I didn't understand what a Messianic Jew, I mean, I didn't, guys, I'd been a Christian for like three weeks, okay? But I was also at that age where I thought, you know, I kind of knew everything and I clearly didn't. And um, and so I went on the air and we started talking about the story and I said, if I really admire him for wanting to hold himself up to a higher standard than man's standard, but, you know, if he also recognized that Yeshua of Nazareth was his Messiah, then I quoted right out of the New Testament where Paul says we don't have to treat any day any differently than any others. You know what I'm saying? And and he would be free to go and use his God-given talent and ability to its fullest potential any day of the week, any time of the year. And like we just, then I remember like we went to a commercial break and like moved on and started talking like NFL. All right. my The phone in the office starts blowing up and it's local media. They want to come down and interview me. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I'm going to get to use this as a platform to talk about my, I, I have no idea what I've walked myself into. I don't know what hornet's nest I've stirred up. Okay. I get up the next morning. I turn on the morning show on my own station and it's hosted by a Jewish guy. He passed away a few years ago. Great guy. We got along great name, Larry Kotler, but he is doing like a complete deconstruction of the new Testament on a weekday morning sports show. <laughs> all right. Instead of talking about sports, I'm like, this is weird. I still don't really know what's going on, though. I just go in, I go into work like any other day of the week, all right? And lo and behold, did I kick up a hornet's nest, all right? And what I said from a New Testament perspective was 
hermeneutically sound, exegetically true. But in October of 2003, I didn't know what hermeneutically sound and exegetically true meant. I didn't contemplate what would be the full ramifications of what I said. I still might have said it anyway. I probably, though, would have said it a heck of a lot better and a lot more um, thorough than I did. I mean, if you email me now, if you, if I, I'll tell you right now, I don't believe... I, I believe I believe what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But I'm I'm much better equipped to have these sorts of conversations than I was at that point. Not to mention, this is a Des Moines, Iowa sports audience. They're like, what in the Sam Hills of Yeshua? Okay. I mean, th- this is this is really not an audience prepared for this. Con- I didn't pre- I didn't prep my audience for this conversation. I came out of literally, pardon the pun, because we're talking about a baseball player, left field. All right. Okay. I mean, the columns get written about this in the Des Moines Register. People I used to work with at the Register now are like, oh, you're like a Nazi. Okay. I mean, losing their minds. And I really didn't understand why. Okay, that's the maddest I ever saw Mark Hansen I, in the so, newsroom. So you were there that day, maybe? Oh yes. Yeah, he's the sports columnist, the register that, and a nice guy who likes you. Yeah, but I, I like him. Like... I've always liked him, but dude really thought maybe I was SS. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I know. And I remember him calling me on the phone. What are you doing, Dace? I'm like, Mark, is it right out of the New Testament? I don't understand. I, you know what? I didn't understand really fully what I was about to where I was about to go, and so therefore I didn't prep my audience either. Okay. And so I, I was told I had to apologize to keep my job. I said, there's no way I'm going to apologize. Not happening. So understand if you ask me to apologize, you're just firing me. So just decide if you don't want me working here anymore. I had to tell them that. So they decided they didn't want me still working there because our ratings were good. But we needed to do something to smooth things over. Okay. And some uh, very well-esteemed members of the local Jewish council uh, offered to meet with me. And, um, you know, have a, a meaningful dialogue about this conversation and essentially wanted to vet me because I had this big platform here in town. And am I just a, a crazy young Christian who's just overzealous and doesn't really know the ramifications of where he just went? Or am I a Nazi? Essentially, they wanted to vet me in person, which was fine. And I agreed to go ahead and have the meeting. We get ready to have the meeting at a restaurant, some a very, you know, posh kind of trendy place in the suburbs out here. And I'm about to pee my pants before this meeting. I'm like, I... I and so I called one of my best buddies who I, and who I, I, I thought to myself, who often goes where he shouldn't go without thinking about it and has had to clean up messes. I'm going to call Jonathan. He does this all the time, right? So I called him. I'm sitting in the parking lot waiting for this meeting to start at this restaurant. I call him on the phone and I'm like, dude, what advice do you have for me right now? He's like, hey, do you have a Bible on you? I said, yeah, I've got, you know, for my men's, study it's in my bag he's like here's all you need to do okay hang up the phone with me get really prayed up and then just take the bible into the meeting with you don't say anything else. just be just and just be you know be nice i know the guys you're actually going to meet with they're cool guys just be nice but take your bible with you i'm like why he's like just trust me and when you sit down at the table open it up i said okay so I get really, really prayed up. This is where the tradition of me getting prayed up before I go and speak places or do the show, it actually began on this day, okay? And I, I get really prayed up and I go in there with my Bible 
And I remember one of these guys like looking at it, like I had walked in here with like a paper bag and I couldn't tell if there was a gun in there or, um, uh, or a fifth of whiskey. Like it stood out, man, me walking in there with a Bible. Okay. And we sat down and we had a great conversation and all I did was open up the Bible and we went back and forth. These guys were way smarter than me on this stuff. They knew much more than I did. But you know what I did that day is I just let the lion out of its cage. And, I, and, and they, they still didn't agree with me. They did not agree that Jesus was the, their promised Messiah. But, but they also saw that I was sincere, that I wasn't after them. We actually got along great. One of those individuals um, used to come on my, when I, when I got moved to news radio, he used to come on the show all the time and talk about pro-Israel policy all the time. Mark Finkelstein was his name. He used to come on several times. And when we went into the meeting, he was originally the most combative guy. By the time we got out of the meeting, him and I actually got along the best of everybody in the whole group and had conversations that went on for years after this. And, and so here is my big advice, Willie, to you and to others battling this in your churches or communities. Open up, take out your weapon, the most potent weapon you have. And you know what's powerful about it is at the same time it is a devastating weapon. It is also it, it, it's also a bring you to your knees love letter. There's nothing like it in all of human history. Nothing. Nothing that's ever been forged that does both of those things at the same time. Slay its enemies while calling them to restoration at the same time. Who can do that? We can't. God can. Don't go in there with your opinions. Don't go in there with a Steve Dace blog or even a Glenn Beck or Mark Levin book. Not to say, hey, all of us are proud of our work and we do it to help and equip people like you, right? But in this specific setting, take the right weapon. You need the right tool for the job. Bring the word. Let the lion out of its cage. You know what I found that day? I ended up saying things that like the time I didn't know that I knew. I didn't know them. I don't know where that came from. It took me years to acquire a lot of the knowledge that I displayed in those conversations because something supernatural happened. I just let the lion out of its cage because the book was written for me as a Gentile every bit as much, if not more, as it was written for them as Jews. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. Less of me, more of him. And I learned that the dumbest thing we as conservatives do in the public sphere is take the Bible away from our talking points and, and talk secularly. No, don't do that. Doesn't mean you stand up, thus speaketh the Lord God of hosts at a city council meeting. That's not what it means. But this should be a part of our everyday language, lexicon, mannerisms. It's, it should be our identity. It should be that people feel as if they can't engage us by getting around this on some level. Because we're ambassadors for this. That's what it means to be a disciple. We're here to deliver this message. The Bible can take the heat. We're the ones who can't. The Bible can take the pressure. It can take the heat. Put it on the word. 
Take it off yourself. Let the lion out of its cage. And so for Willie or anybody else, you want to confront critical race theory in your churches, what have you. Whatever, whatever the fad du jour is right now, whatever the spitball hell is throwing at you right now, whatever your church is getting TP'd with right now, step one, let the lion out of its cage. Just go Colombo, man. Hey, one more. Th- I got one more thing. Can you show me where this is at in the scriptures? Where's this at? Come now. Let us reason together. Let us reason together. Gentlemen, you have any thoughts on that? Well, you do that. You want to make sure that people understand that uh, their faith is sufficient. It, it, it's not just part of the equation. It is the equation. It is the answer. And I got into this with a local Catholic college here right after BLM started, and they just went all in on the BLM stuff. And you could tell that all their branding was the same as any secular institution. I'm like, what? Did you not have this figured out? Do you really need this? Mm-hmm. And it did not end up going well. Of course, we didn't have a face-to-face and allow for the friendships to develop like that. But your faith does not have an asterisk on it. It doesn't need any other help, whether it's this issue or another. Yep. Right on the money. There you go. We'll come back. South Dakota Governor Christy Noem going to join us next. Well, she has become an aggressive marketer of her state, and she joins us now. She's the governor of South Dakota. Christy Noem is here with us. Christy, uh, welcome to the Steve Day Show here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. I have enjoyed watching you solicit people to openly move to your state. Tell us about that effort, where that came from, and why you're doing that. Well, when I ran for governor, um, I I told the people of South Dakota that I believed that uh, we needed more higher paying jobs in the state, uh, that we had an opportunity to grow our economy and create opportunity for our kids and grandkids, and that this was a really special place, um, that it was one of the last places in the country where uh, people, you know, were executing personal responsibility, work hard, had wonderful values and that I felt it was pretty special. That's why I worked so hard to come back to the state. So, you know, throughout this uh, pandemic we've been experiencing the last several months, uh, people are really recognizing, I think, leaders and their impact on their daily lives. And uh, I found that there's a lot of folks that are maybe looking for a new place to be. We've seen an incredible amount of folks that called and were interested in moving their businesses or their families to South Dakota. So, we decided to aggressively go after them and tell them our story. That's a good segue to where I want to go next. Take us back to the early days of this pandemic and let our audience, Governor, into the pressure someone in your position is under. Um, also, there's let's face it, there's plenty of things you don't know. Um, and, and you don't know that you can trust the initial data that you're getting from China. You have on the same day that the president is shutting off uh, travel to China, you have the World Health Organization tweet out that China assures us there's no human-to-human transmission of COVID-19. So, I mean, there, there are so many variables going on right now, but yet you came back to this state uh, to be its governor because you believed 
in the you know the discipline, the character, the integrity of the people. And yet there's a lot of pressure right now to lean on them in ways where maybe you don't trust them and government's got to intervene instead. And most of the other states around the country chose to go down that road. Walk us through your decision-making process in those early days. Well, it was probably back in January where we were hearing about this virus and uh, learning about it. I started studying and watching other countries, their response, uh, some of what the health experts were telling us. I opened an emergency operations center uh, then and started to really gather information with my health officials, but also other members of my executive team. We had our first cases in March, about March 10th. And uh, that was really when we saw it kind of escalating across the country. But I think the difference is, is that, you know, I I put a lot of time into not just speaking with my state health uh, department, which was incredibly um, wonderful throughout the entire thing, but also with uh, sitting on phone calls across the nation with um, doctors and state epidemiologists and other departments of health, just listening in. I don't think there was any other governors on a lot of those calls but I wanted to learn as much as I could personally about the virus and how what what we knew about it was changing. But then I brought in a lot of my general counsel, other attorneys that specialized in constitutional authorities in our state uh, constitution and also the U.S. Constitution to find out really what my role was as governor. I, I recognized that I had authorities. I also recognized that as laid out by the Constitution, there are some things I don't have the authority to do. And I wanted to go into this situation with eyes wide open and make sure that I was keeping my promises. So as I went forward, you know, in South Dakota, we, I never closed any businesses. I didn't even define what an essential business was because I didn't believe I had the authority to tell a business they weren't essential. And then also um, just never issued a shelter in place or, you know, mandated masking either. I, I just told my people that I was going to be honest with them that, the science and the data, the facts were changing. I was going to give them every bit of information that I had, and then I was going to trust them. And overwhelmingly, uh, the people responded, and they trusted me, and we got through the beginning six months of this virus very well. We recognize we're not done with it yet, but I think what we've done here is, is pretty special and is an example to the nation, which is what I knew South Dakota could do all along. Did you ever receive any pressure when you're doing things differently, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you know our governor here in Iowa, Kim Reynolds. She received all Very kinds well. of pressure yeah, from IHME at the University of Washington. Uh, she got phone calls from Anthony Fauci. She received a lot of pressure uh, to kind of conform to the lockdown um, prevailing wisdom of the time. Did you receive that kind of pressure? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you remember, we had one of the uh, first hot spots in the nation with the Smithfield plant in Sioux Falls, South mm-hmm. Dakota. And that was really when um, we saw the pressure come. I saw it a lot from the liberal news media. I mean, it was unbelievable. Rachel Maddow and Elizabeth Warren went after me. And um, that's really probably how people really started to hear about me was from the left coming after and attacking the decisions that I was making. But I think that, um, you know, the, we knew that we ran for these positions uh, and that there would be good days and that there would be hard days. I think what was, un, you know, that was challenging for us was, I think Kim would say the same thing, that there's days that you feel a little lonely. I mean, your staff and your, and your team is incredible and they give you all the information in the world and they give you their opinions on what you should do. 
Uh, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, you're the one who has to decide and live with the consequences. And that's kind of a scary thing on some of those days when you're dealing with a pe- public health crisis like we have been facing. There's been two, I think, existential arguments that we've been trying to navigate as a people this year. COVID is one of them. The other is, what's our legacy? Uh, what's our history? And then what does that tell us about what path we ought to chart moving forward? Are we, um, in, in, uh, you know, are we a fundamentally racist country? Um, or are we a country that has um, that was founded on fundamental virtues that has a checkered history and an imperfect one in trying to uh, deploy and install them? But whenever we return to those fundamental virtues, it puts us on the right track. Or were we off the, the, the on the wrong track from the very beginning? These paths are diverging right now, and a lot of what we're seeing happening in our streets, um, on social media, uh, the unrest that we're seeing across the country. Yet it, it could not be lost that uh, President Trump chose to give an Independence Day address there in your neck of the woods. And you were there with him in front of the country at Mount Rushmore, uh, embracing the, the the values and the legacy that this country was founded on. Tell us about that. What, why you believe in that path? Well, I don't, I don't believe uh, that there was two different histories here. Uh, we may have people in this country today that from this point forward choose to take different paths, but our history is clear. Uh, we were founded on values and virtues and moral beliefs by people who were flawed, who made mistakes, but also people who stepped up in incredibly challenging times and did big things for our country to promote equality and freedom and personal responsibility. And so I don't think that our past can be debated at all. It is very clear. The facts are there. We just have to make sure that it's not erased by those who would choose to do that from here at this point forward is really where this country needs to decide what they want to be. And I just realized uh, several months ago that I, during my press conferences during this pandemic, I, it wasn't just my responsibility to stand up in front of the people and talk about the decisions I was making. I needed to tell them why I was making those decisions and what I believed, and to also reteach our history and um, make sure that I was um, educating them as to what I felt the Constitution said and uh, what states' rights means, what federalism means, and also what we can do going forward to make sure that you don't have leaders overstepping their authority in a time of crisis. Because when you have that uh, is when you lose your country. And that has been what has been Uh, I think a little scary for me is just to watch leaders ignore that uh, guiding because that's the constitution's our foundation. And if we can keep uh, an adherence to that, that really is what will sustain us for the next, you know, 200 years. But if we break that at this point in time, then I'm not certain as to what, what future holds for us. Over the weekend, uh, the local government in Washington, D.C. voted to remove a lot of that legacy that you're talking about. And that is in in clear contrast to uh, what, what you're calling your Capital Freedom Project. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this. You know, when the state capitol in South Dakota was built, there was four alcoves put on the outside of the dome that were prepared for statues to be placed there. At the time, I don't believe there was money for it or it wasn't completed. And during all of this discussion of tearing down monuments, tearing down our history, um, we had been looking at those alcoves anyways and decided that now was the time to raise the money privately to put four statues of the four men that are on Mount Rushmore 
on our Capitol Dome. Um, I just believe that there's a point in time for us to set an example. And while the rest of the country is tearing down their monuments, tearing down their statues, that South Dakota will be putting them up and honoring people who led our country through challenging times. And each one of those men on Mount Rushmore is incredibly special to South Dakota, you know, for for reasons that is obvious to everybody. And so to, to honor them and put them on our dome at this point in time is even more important than it was uh, previously. What I find fascinating about this part of our conversation, Christy, is is I'm getting emails from listeners and viewers all over the country that are hearing from their local politicians, some of their local conservative politicians, uh, some of their local churches. I just dealt with an email uh, with from somebody dealing with, uh, you know, sort of the idea that America is an inherently racist country in his own church. And, and there seems to be this temptation to say, you know, maybe they've got a point. You know, maybe there's something to this and and we can kind of uh, find some way to compromise with the civil unrest we're seeing play out in our streets. What I hear from you, though, is the answer to this challenge is to actually embrace the values and the founding and the legacy of the country, actually to embrace it even tighter. Right. Is that what I, I'm hearing from you? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, you do see instances and circumstances throughout the country where you could say racism was a part of that situation. But overwhelmingly, our country was a country that was founded by people and by values that wanted equality and everybody to have an opportunity to be successful, that fought to end racism uh, decade after decade. So, uh, you know, and we perhaps have... um, not pursued that enough to teach this generation about how important that is and the true truth of the history. You know, I worked last uh, two legislative sessions ago to get a civics bill put in so that our kids in high schools would be able to uh, have more civics and history uh, instruction while they were in their school districts. But, you know, it was defeated by a Republican legislature. So Hmm. hopefully this will stir people to realize uh, that it's important that we know our history, that we that we build from that, and that we use that to learn and be teachable each day to be even better than those who came before us. I've got about ninety seconds, Governor. If if you were advising President Trump the final sixty days of this campaign, what one singular piece of advice would you give him? I'll keep working. Don't stop. We need you. You know, our, I really do truly believe that our way of life is in jeopardy. When you look at the policies Joe Biden has embraced, um, you know, they will absolutely devastate this country and especially the Midwest. When you look at the tax increases he's proposing, his uh, Green New Deal that he has embraced eliminating fossil fuels, when you look at how he'll go after our Second Amendment rights, um, pro-choice, eliminate our, our sanctity of life um, values that we have, it is just over and over and over again, um, what that party stands for today, the attack on law and order, that is not American. And so that is why I would tell the president, just keep speaking truth directly to the people and keep working. We need you. South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, it's a pleasure to finally get you on the show, Christy. Thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. All right, take care. Gentlemen, your thoughts on that conversation? It's amazing. Is she? It's like you know that old saying: uh, "Is this heaven?" No, it's Iowa from uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, are you an angel? No, I'm just the governor of South Dakota. I I have a hard time believing it's real. 
it's authentic authentic anymore because we've heard people say things like that i know you have on your show for a long time and not been honest she seems like it's real she she really wants you to know when you see me i want you to see the founding principles i want you to see the people who voted me in i want you to see the constitution she almost took my breath away right out of the gate when she said you know when this pandemic hit i didn't anoint myself a demigod i said what can i do and what can't i do do you know how rare that is for a politician at any level in mm-hmm. any party mm-hmm. to have that instinct so governor Noam, if you are still listening whatever else happens in your future Thank God that is part of you now and hold on to that instinct as far as you go because it is the best of us. Yeah, uh, just I would echo that that last part there as well. And that was the con- the part of the conversation that that stood out to me as as well here. I mean, you can look at this from uh, not only the standpoint of the, the idea, the transcendent ideas of liberty, but also from a political standpoint as well. And, and just to put a finer point on what Todd said, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, and even now, it seems like every single elected leader from dog catcher on up to name, name the office are asking themselves, how far can I go? Well, it sounded like Governor Noam actually asked, uh, what can I do? What can't I do? That's a huge difference right there. That's a world of difference right there as mm-hmm. well. And in a time as, as, as well where we have uh, we have uh, given our fair share of licks to Texas, you know, one of your relocation mistresses, Steve, Texas, for some of the just boneheaded and crazy things and policies that they've enacted. They were one of the first states, um, the, you know, before the so-called second wave to mandate mask usages, uh, usage as well. Um, outdoors. In a to- outdoors. <clears throat> in a time like that, politically, she not only understands and I, I think has amazing moral and, and uh, just kind of those transcendent value instincts as well, which is priceless in this day and age, but politically as well, branding South Dakota as the state of liberty and freedom mm-hmm. and America at a time when Texas is doing some really crazy bleep. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly smart as well. And I, uh, you know, no state income tax there last time I checked. So that's, that's also cool. You know, the, the constitution is, is what's unique about it in all of human history. It's the first social compact that was written where government is asserting what it cannot do what the limits of its jurisdictions are. And did you, as you guys noted, that was the premise of her, yes. of her conversation when, when, when the pandemic began, Hey, you know, what's the, what are the limits of my power? I can't say that's not essential. I have no yeah, right. Yeah. How, I know. how infrequently do we hear that? And we could just say, Hey, it's just a talking point, right? But we actually watched her do it for the last six months. So it was, it's not just a talking point. She did it right. Amen. That's going to do it for today. Back at it again tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.